Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There are two other hosts that are joining me today. Daniel Sun. Heyo. And Hans. Howdy, howdy. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. To see the full list of Patreon episodes, go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on Patreon Episodes tab. There you will see an entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, today we've added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over Rendlesham Forest. So in that episode, we discuss the UFO encounter that happened there, which is pretty much like the UK's version of Area 51. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. So you get access to that episode, as well as all the others, for just $5. If you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave a written review on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressured to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever, whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is the Battle of Los Angeles. So how this episode will go today is that we will first talk about what happened leading up to the actual event, and then we'll go into the event itself, and then into strange facts and findings, theories, and then, of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. During World War II, millions of residents in Los Angeles were awoken to the sound of air raid sirens going off. Many citizens assumed that they were being attacked and took cover. Explosions of anti-aircraft artillery echoed throughout the city. However, some individuals decided to step outside and look into the sky. What they saw astonished them. An oval-shaped object hovered in the sky over Los Angeles. Multiple military skylights shined upon it and anti-aircraft artillery bombarded it. However, nothing seemed to affect it. This is the Battle of Los Angeles. All right. So to understand this topic better, we have to start off discussing what happened leading up to the event. So Dan, do you want to start it off for us and tell us about what happened? So this Battle of Los Angeles occurred in February of 1942. 
But just like Aaron said, to understand this topic, we have to understand the mindset of the people in that area of Los Angeles during this time in history. Now, only a few months prior, in December of 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor happened. Which, if you don't know what the attack on Pearl Harbor was, let us hit you with a little knowledge nugget and explain it real quick. Pearl Harbor is a U.S. naval base near Honolulu, Hawaii. On December 7, 1941, just before 8 a.m., hundreds of Japanese fighter planes surprised the naval base and descended upon it. These Japanese fighter planes started attacking the base, and they managed to destroy and damage nearly 20 American naval vessels, including eight battleships and over 300 airplanes. More than 2,400 Americans died in the attack including civilians and another 1,000 people were wounded. The day after the assault, the United States Congress declared war on the Empire of Japan. And there you go. That's a little knowledge nugget for you about what Pearl Harbor was. So following the Pearl Harbor attack, many Americans were on edge. They believed that the Japanese were going to send more planes to the United States and start bombing shit. So you figured that the politicians would help ease the stress of the American people. However, that wasn't the case. In early February of 1942, U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson, he decided to make an announcement where he stated that American cities should prepare to accept occasional blows from enemy forces. After this statement was made, rumors began to spread. Residents in Juneau, Alaska were told to cover their windows during nightly blackouts after reports of Japanese submarines were lurking along the southeast Alaskan coast. At the same time, there was another report that a Japanese aircraft carrier was cruising off the coast of the San Francisco Bay Area. Of course, this caused everybody to freak out, and uh, the city of Oakland decided to close all of its schools, and they issued a blackout, which they told everybody, hey, shut off all your lights, electricity, everything's going dark. And that's what they did. The city of Seattle also imposed a blackout of all buildings and vehicles, and owners who left the lights on in their buildings had their businesses smashed by a mob of 2,000 residents. At this same time, though, 500 United States Army troops moved into the Walt Disney Studios lot in Burbank, California to defend the famed Hollywood facility and nearby factories against enemy sabotage or air attacks. Oh, gotta protect Walt Disney. So needless to say, the United States began mobilizing for war. Cities in California had anti-aircraft guns installed, bunkers were built, and air raid precautions were taught in schools all over the country. Only a short time later, on February 23, 1942, a Japanese submarine surfaced off the coast of Santa Barbara, California. Now, this submarine, it decided to launch over a dozen artillery shells at an oil field and refinery. However, uh, this attack wasn't very well planned out because it only caused minor damage, and it didn't hurt or kill anyone. So the day after the oil field bombing, is when one of the most unusual and mysterious incidences in history occurred. All right, now that we know what was going on at the time in history and kind of got an understanding of what people were feeling, let's get into the actual event. So this all began on the evening of February 24th, 1942. Right before sunset, United States Naval Intelligence instructed units on the California coast to prepare themselves for a potential Japanese attack. 
For the next few hours, nothing really happened. However, that quickly changed. Shortly after midnight, on February 25th, the United States Navy radar began tracking a mysterious object that they assumed was an enemy aircraft around 120 miles west of Los Angeles. At 2.15 a.m., certain military personnel were alerted. Within minutes, these troops were in position on their anti-aircraft gun stations, ready to open fire. At this time, the AAF was discussing if they should send some of their planes out to intercept the incoming enemy. However, they decided to keep their planes on the ground. They wanted to await and see the scale and direction of the attack before committing its limited fighter force to any altercations. So if you don't know what the AAF is, Hans, our military advisor, please give us a brief summary of what the AAF is. Little knowledge nugget for you, the Air Force wasn't around during World War II, it was strictly the Army. So it was basically like the Army Air Force or the Air Corps, just so y'all know that. I thought it was the Alliance of American Football. Get out of here with that. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) All right. Military radar continued to track the approaching target to within a few miles of the coast. At 2.21 a.m., the regional controller ordered a blackout. Four minutes later at 2.25 a.m., Los Angeles County air raid sirens turned on, alerting over two million of its citizens that an attack was about to occur. A citywide blackout was then put into effect. All electricity was turned off and the city went completely dark. Shortly after that, multiple troops started sweeping the skies with bright searchlights, looking for the supposed incoming enemy aircraft. Around the same time, the mysterious object that was presumed to be an enemy aircraft made its way from the sea. It was about to approach Los Angeles when suddenly it vanished on radar. At 2.43 a.m., planes were reported near Long Beach, and a few minutes later, a colonel reported that he spotted about 25 planes at 12,000 feet over Los Angeles. However, nothing was being picked up on radar. A little after 3 a.m., the 37th Coast Artillery Brigade spotted something in the sky over Santa Monica. They radioed this in, and four anti-aircraft artillery guns began firing 50 caliber machine guns and 12.8-pound anti-aircraft shells into the sky at this reported aircraft. Many of the city's other coastal defense systems joined in and began firing. The 4th Interceptor Command of the United States was alerted of this situation, but their aircraft remained grounded as they were unsure of what was in the sky due to the odd reports that were being called in. For example, reports of planes of all varying sizes traveling at altitudes which ranged from thousands of feet to about 20,000 feet in the sky. Some were flying at speeds which were said to be very slow or even just hovering. However, all reports were stating that these mysterious forces in the sky dropped no bombs and were not attacking back, even though Thousands of rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition was being directed to them. Also, none of these anti-aircraft rounds were affecting them. During this event, many residents of Los Angeles stepped out from their houses and looked into the skies. They first noticed the barrage of automatic fire heading skywards from the ground. 
but then saw that there were no enemy airplanes falling in flames to the ground below. In fact, residents reported that they didn't see any planes in the sky at all, nothing swooping and descending down. What many individuals did see, however, was the vague shape of a huge oval object. All the searchlights in the sky, as well as all the military gunfire, were being focused on this one object in the sky. However, nothing seemed to affect it. No gunfire, nothing. Some residents stated that it appeared as though some kind of invisible shield was around this mysterious object. As the firing continued, more residents of the Los Angeles' many districts looked into the sky witnessing the event. Then this giant object started calmly and smoothly moving through the dark sky, seeming oblivious to the round after round of heavy artillery fire. This barrage of aircraft fire continued for over an hour. Eventually, at 4.14 a.m., the firing stopped and the city went completely quiet. An all-clear was sounded and the blackout order was lifted at 7.21 a.m. That morning, the military started inspecting the damage and found that the only damage that occurred the night before had come from friendly fire. The shrapnel from the anti-aircraft ammunition that they had fired in the sky had rained down across the city, shattering windows and ripping through buildings. Several residents had their homes partially destroyed by these three-inch artillery shells entering their home. Luckily, no one had died from these artillery shells. However, five people had died during the blackout due to heart attacks and car accidents. So needless to say, a lot of people were confused as to what happened. And these individuals had a reason to be confused because there were a lot of different things being said as to what happened the night before. For example, the morning of February 25th, Frank Knox, the Secretary of Navy, held a press conference. Frank said that the entire raid was just a false alarm and that he insisted that there was no evidence of the presence of enemy planes in the sky. Frank also said in that press conference that coastal attacks are always possible and that vital industries located along the coast should be moved inward. So basically he said, look, there's no enemies out there, but if you got a vital business that we need to make sure it keeps running during World War II, move that bitch in closer. We can't risk it. The Army then went on record and first stated that there were no planes over Los Angeles the night before. Later that same day, the Army started interviewing witnesses of what they had seen the night before. After hearing what others had said, the Army then altered their verdict that no planes were over Los Angeles the night before to one to five unidentified airplanes had been over Los Angeles the night before with the purpose to locate anti-aircraft defenses in the area and deliver a blow to civilian morale. Shortly after that, Secretary of War Henry Stimson went on record and backed up the Army's statement but stated that there was at least 15 planes had buzzed the city. Over the next few days, government and media outlets issued contradictory reports on what had occurred, and this event became known as the Battle of Los Angeles. All right, so that's the official story of the Battle of Los Angeles. But it doesn't stop there. There is a lot more weird and crazy things that occurred during this event that we didn't get into that we're going to hop into right now. 
So let's get into our juicy, strange facts and findings that revolve around this event. So Dan, can you start it off for us? Our first strange fact and finding is about the photograph that everyone refers to when talking about the Battle of Los Angeles. The one with a lot of strobe lights in the sky pointing in on one object and missiles being fired toward that direction. And if you haven't seen that photograph, just go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the References tab, scroll down a little bit, and it should be under this week's episode. All right, so let's discuss this photo and talk about who took it and all the good, good stuff. So in the middle of the night, as events were unfolding, a reporter with the Los Angeles Times newspaper received word that something was happening near Santa Monica. The reporter in question lived around 12 miles away to the east of the location of San Gabriel Valley area of the city. He immediately got dressed, jumped into his car, and made his way through the pitch black roads because, you know, there was a blackout and he wasn't able to use his headlights because if he did, he would attract the attention of the police, military, and air raid wardens who would, you know, order him to go inside or arrest him since the city was under blackout. So he was the one that probably caused those five accidents or those deaths. Maybe. All right. So the reporter arrived near Baldwin Hills and could clearly see the object in the sky that was caught in the collective glow of all of the searchlights. He jumped out of his car and pointed his camera at the scene above him and snapped a photograph. On February 26th, this photograph would run in the Los Angeles Times newspaper, and millions of people around the world would study the picture for decades. Yeah, and like we said, we'll have this photograph in our references uh, tab on our website, and you can take a look at it. And it's the iconic Battle of Los Angeles photograph. What do you guys think of that? Look at the anti-aircraft flak, those little dots. Those are all the, ex- the shells just exploding around it. Do they explode when they hit something or do they explode after a certain elevation? They have like a fuse on them. Okay. So they're, they're meant for like low level flying. So like if this thing's at 20,000 feet, four miles, they're not going to hit it. It's mainly for, like, bombers and fighters that are coming in. It's more or less just to flack the air and cause shrapnel damage to all the aircraft. Okay. So about 2,000 to 4,000 feet, they'll detonate. It's just random. I mean, if, if you can get a direct hit, then that's even cooler. You can tell in this photo that there is something that they're shining upon that's reflecting the light. Right? Yeah. All right, so we'll hypothesize as to what this could be during our theories section. But uh, let's go on to our next strange fact and finding. All right, um, now before we get into this next section, we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Our next strange fact and finding revolves around the fact there was no wreckage. So, you know, during the battle, the United States Army fired thousands of anti-aircraft flak shells 
at a strange object. Even the Army Air Corps dispatched fighter planes to intercept and shoot down this object. Yet with all this firepower in the sky, they weren't able to dent it, stop it, do anything. It's also strange, you know, that when these fighter planes arrived on station to where the target was, they reported that they didn't see any UFO or any other aircraft in the area when arriving on station. Hmm. Odd. And this strange fact kind of goes in with our next strange fact, because you would assume that, well, well, maybe it was the Japanese that had something in the air that went away. But our next strange fact and finding kind of puts that to rest, right, Dan? Yeah. The next strange fact and finding is about a statement from the Japanese military. So, shortly after World War II ended, the Japanese military went on record and stated that they had never flown an aircraft over the city during World War II. Which, they don't really have a reason to lie. Well, I mean, they might be kind of butthurt about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think they did only bomb, like, one U.S. state, and that was Alaska. Well, they, they bombed the, that oil refinery. No, like an airplane. Like, they launched airplanes up and, like, flew into Alaska. A kamikaze eat it? Fact check me here, guys, but I'm pretty sure that they flew, like, two airplanes up there to drop some bombs on, like, a city. And they couldn't find the city, so they just dropped the bombs and started a big forest fire, and they just left. Oh, my God. What a bunch of dicks. Nice. All right, and things get even more stranger with our next strange fact and finding, which this one comes from a witness who stated that she was there during the incident. So this witness was an individual named Katie, and at the time, she was an interior designer and artist who worked with many of the Hollywood stars. Now, she was also among the 12,000 other Los Angeles residents that were a volunteer air raid warden. So when her phone rang in the early hours of the 25th of February, she already had an idea that something was likely afoot. On the other end of the phone was her direct air raid supervisor. There was, they said, an immediate alert. They wished to know if she had seen anything unusual in the sky, more specifically near her home. Katie lived not far from Santa Monica on Los Angeles' west side. Upon being asked a question, she walked over to the window of the room she was in. She would later recall to the investigator, it was huge. It was just enormous. It was practically right over my house. I had never seen anything like it in my life. Katie also stated that this object was just hovering there, and it was a lovely pale orange color, but it had an eerie quality to it, but it was the most beautiful thing that she had ever seen. Katie also stated that shortly after saying that over the phone, the U.S. military searchlights found the object in the sky and shined their lights on it. Katie then stated that she saw fighter planes fly into the air and watch them in groups approach the object and then turn away. She stated that the ground artillery began to fire upon the object. So much firepower was sent upward, it was like the 4th of July, with the military firing like crazy, Katie said. Katie would continue to watch events unfold from the safety of her living room window for close to half an hour. She stated that she witnessed several direct hits impacted upon the surface of the object. However, no damage at all was visible. 
In fact, it would appear as though the huge shells simply fell to the ground at the last moment. Katie then stated that the object then began to move away, eventually disappearing into the night. I mean, this statement, this witness statement is a good one, but we can't verify who Katie is because they don't have her last name and she never goes in public again and, you know, and makes any more statements. So, yeah, so you're kind of skeptical, right, on her witness statement because you don't really have a last name. But this next strange fact and finding you do, it's another witness statement. And Hans, you want to tell us who this is from? Retired anthropology professor Scott Littleton was a young boy whenever this event happened. Scott's father was an air raid warden, and both of them had almost perfect view of the incident. Scott described the object in the sky as like a lajan, you know, a little cough drop, a little oval. Scott also stated that he witnessed artillery shells exploding all around it. That would make sense, though, considering the artillery shells that they were firing because they purposely exploded, yes. regardless if they hit something or not. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Well, seems like a lot of people didn't know that because uh, in our research, a lot of people point to the fact that, oh, these shells were exploding in the air. That means they were hitting something. But that's how they worked. Yeah, that's how they work. That's how a, f a flat gun works. They just explode shrapnel and they're not meant like the 50 cal yes that's just meant to hit they don't blow up okay the the big guns yes those do cause uh lots of damage all right the more you know so all of this information right these witness testimonies that photograph all of it's kind of like eh. when i'm doing my research i'm kind of like okay well nothing really solid is jumping out to me as this being extraterrestrial, right? It could just be that they're witnessing something that's not there. However, that all changes whenever you look over this document that we're about to go over. So our next strange fact and finding is about a released document. Now, in 1974, someone filed a Freedom of Information Act request, and an interesting document was released to the public. This document was a top-secret memo written by the Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall to President Franklin Roosevelt on March 5, 1942. In this memo, General Marshall addresses the president about some interesting things that they had found when they started looking into the Battle of Los Angeles. Now, I'm going to read a little paragraph of what the document said. But the document in general is very bad quality. So you can only make out a couple of the sentences. So there's going to be like sections that don't make sense. But for the most part, what you can make out this document says is regarding the air raid over Los Angeles, it was learned by Army G2 that Rear Admiral Anderson recovered an unidentified airplane off the coast of California with no bearing on conventional explanation. This headquarters has come to the determination that the mysterious airplanes are in fact not earthly, and according to secret intelligence sources, they are in all probability of interplanetary origin. As a consequence, I have issued orders to Army G2 that a special intelligence unit 
be created to further investigate the phenomenon and report any significant connection between the recent incidences and those collected by the Director of the Office of Coordinator of Information. So what do you think of that? They found a plane that has no bearing on conventional explanation and all probability of interplanetary origin. What the All right, you know they had to make FDR stand up where he was. Oh. Imagine being the president and getting that memo saying that, hey, we found something that is extraterrestrial or interplanetary origin. How would you, like, sleep at night knowing that? As the president, how do you protect your civilians from something like that? You can't. You automatically start reverse engineering it. You create a branch and you start reverse engineering that to try to find out as much information as you can. And then you make alliances with all the other governments in the world, create a one world government, and then you just try to protect the people. I don't know. That's creepy. You just get this memo and you're just like, well, hmm. It is, it is weird. And our next strange fact and finding is just as weird. All right, let's talk about this last strange fact and finding we've got here. So, on December 9th, 1941, just two days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, according to a general named General Ryan, several strange objects rose out of the sea off the coast of San Francisco, which surprisingly is really not that far away from Los Angeles if you look it up. It's kind of like a stone's throw away. Now, this being reported by the military caused the U.S. Navy to dispatch three vessels to the area and investigate this report. Because of General Ryan's claims, the whole city of San Francisco was placed in a blackout state. Now, after the blackout state was over, General Ryan was asked if he believed that those planes slash strange objects were Japanese. And he stated this, Well, those weren't army planes. They weren't navy planes. And you can be sure that they were not civilian planes either. Now, not many view that the blackout and the dispatching of the Navy vessels and the mobilization of the anti-aircraft truck guns that day to be a test. You know, since it was only two days after, you know, the attack at Pearl Harbor, kind of like put them on edge. And General Ryan continued to insist that what happened that day off the coast of San Francisco was not a test. Strange objects rising out of the sea off the coast of San Francisco. Odd. What's that episode we did where we saw those leaked photographs, those government photographs of those um, almost UFO-like objects falling into the sea? I think that was your UFO episode that you all did. Probably. I remember asking my uncle about it because he was a submarine on submarines all the time. So he's got some wacky stories. Those are some real high-quality photographs. This whole thing is just strange. And before we start going and hypothesizing and theorizing as to what this could have been and what actually happened that day, we do have a quick audio clip that we're going to listen to, which is the actual news report, right, Hans? Yeah, actual news report from the day of the battle. All right, so we'll take a listen to that right now. And now for news of our own West Coast, we take you to Los Angeles and the report of Byron Palmer. 
anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles, far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. U.S. Army planes quickly took to the dark skies, but whether they contacted the object has not been announced. Army officials say they will not comment until they receive a full report of the action. Although some watchers say they saw airplanes in the air, semi-official sources say they probably were the U.S. Army's pursuit. Several observers say they saw one or more planes spotlighted by 20 or 30 searchlights. The object moved southward presumably over Huntington Park at the western edge of Los Angeles and on southward to about Long Beach on the coast. By 3.30 a.m., observers said the object appeared to be over the south of Long Beach. Searchlights closely followed the object down the coast and kept it centered in their glare. Shells frequently could be seen bursting near the object, but none appeared to hit it. All right, so that's some audio of what happened during that day of the Battle of Los Angeles. We just figured that we'd include that at the end, you know? Some old footage as well. Yeah, there was some old footage. Yeah, could see the artillery shells going off near it. Little, little bleeps. And we'll link that video uh, as well on our website for you guys to go take a look at. All right, um, now before we get into this next section, we're just going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So now we're going to get into the theories section. So Hans, I know that you have this first theory highlighted. So do you want to tell us about this one? So I want you all to hear me out on this theory. Like we said, this battle or UFO encounter happened literally two months after the attack of Pearl Harbor, right? Yes. So... Fun fact, the United States knew there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor. We could have prevented the mass casualties and loss of American service members' lives that day. Yeah, that's a fact. We knew that that was going to happen. The attack was incoming. Yeah, they could have been alerted. They could have been prepared. Everything. But you know what? Good old U.S. didn't do anything. Now... Who's to say that this UFO over Los Angeles truly wasn't a blimp? But it was a blimp from the United States Army. So this being said, what if this foe attack, let's say it was fake, foe, was a false flag operation to ramp up the fear of the American people, causing the country to be more fearful of both Japan and Germany's war capabilities? I mean, look at it. Just 24 hours before the UFO appeared, 
the Elmwood Naval Base was attacked by a Japanese submarine. Yes, did it cause a little civilian casualties? I think I read a report saying there's 12 people that died. Wasn't a, a big success. They didn't blow up these fuel tanks that they were aiming for. But it sent the whole area on alert in fear that not only is Hawaii not safe, but the coastal states of the United States are now vulnerable to attack. This false flag operation would increase the number of men and women enlisting in the military and forestalling the national draft that took place later that year, in 1942. And before you all say it, yes, women could enlist in the military in 1942, but they did not go to the front lines. They worked in factories and worked as nurses. Now, this would also explain why there was no wreckage from an intense air artillery fire. 2,000 rounds. You've got 50 cows. You've got 12-pound potatoes being thrown up in the air, basically exploding everywhere. And you mean to tell me nothing was found? So let's move on to this next little thing I've got. These air defense batteries might have been given the order to shoot wide of the target so that it wouldn't damage U.S. government property and the service members on board, and it wouldn't kill them because this was a false flag operation. And if you also look up the Elmwood naval base attack, the military intelligence, those are like two words that just don't go together, FYI, was informed that there was going to be another attack within hours. And who's to say that the intel was that the U.S. was going to stage a fake false flag attack? Me just playing devil's advocate, if they were to state, shoot wide of this target, wouldn't some of those people that were manning those air defense systems come out and say, hey, we were told to shoot wide of it? It's a different kind of uh, military back then. That was that more of like, you shut up or, you know, you get got. Yeah, it's true. And you have to think, I mean, they just had Pearl Harbor happened almost two months ago or two months prior. And then you have uh, this whole, like, hey, serve your country, we're in World War II, don't, you know, don't turn on America. So, okay, all right. That, that was just my thought thinking about it, because, like, you know, it's Pearl Harbor happened. Yes, it was a sad, tragic thing, very sad, very preventable, like we've said. But when you start putting stuff closer to home, because Hawaii wasn't a state, it was a territory at the time. So you got to remember that. We had bases there, but when you add an attack close to home, that's when you start hitting home to the American people. Yeah, and you get the ramp up for support. Yeah, kind of like 9-11. Yeah. All right, so this next theory that we're going to talk about, it's kind of similar to yours, Hans. But before we talk about it, let's, let's talk about what occurred on February 19th, 1942 which was five or so days before the Battle of Los Angeles occurred. So on that day, February 19, 1942, Executive Order 9066 was signed and issued into effect by United States President Franklin D. Roosevelt. So what was this Executive Order 9066? Well, this order declared certain areas of the western United States as zones of exclusion for the war. Because of this, around 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry in the United States were forced from their homes in those areas of the West Coast 
and sent to one of ten relocation camps. And they were imprisoned behind barbed wire for the length of the war. And not many people know this. We had our own sort of concentration camps here in the United States for Japanese citizens. And most of them were American citizens. I mean, two-thirds of them were actually American citizens. But the military were scared of them being spies for Japan. So they decided to put all of them into these camps. This, of course, was super controversial for the time, which leads me to my theory. What if this Battle of Los Angeles was just a way for the president and the military to fake, quote unquote, fake an invasion of the Japanese to get the public to fear such Japanese attacks and in turn change the public's view on these Japanese concentration camps in the United States? So what do they do? They get a blimp, they fly it over, right? And now the people are in fear. The attacks are not happening overseas. They're happening on our home turf. So yeah, go ahead. Take the Japanese people and put them in these concentration camps. So that's my theory, or one of my theories, is it this was all fake to support the Executive Order 9066, or 9066. So what do you think of that? Kind of lines up with yours, Hans. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty good. I mean, the anti-sentiment towards anybody that was of any Asian descent. <laughs> Dan, Dan sits up and what? <laughs> In case you don't know, Dan's Asian, by the way. We did have uh, someone on Patreon. They left our Patreon and de-pledged and said the racist Asian comments from Dan or some, something like that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Dan is Asian. He's not making any racial comments. A lot of the shit I say actually comes from what I grew up with. So if y'all can't handle it, grow some balls. All right. Um, so I guess let's go on to the next theory. I mean, we have a lot of theories that are good like this that explain it. They could be any, any one of these, right? Dan, hit us with one. Uh, Japanese warfare. This theory is that the Japanese did in fact fly a plane right off the coast and then kamikaze that bitch into the ocean. Why would they do this, though? Well, it would make the United States military wonder what happened to the object on radar and why it disappeared. This would cause major panic. Not just to the military, but to the civilians as well. Then you have all these military people with itchy trigger fingers. They see something in the sky and start firing at it. Hey, you're stationed over in the United States. You're not overseas fighting. You're going to have an itchy trigger finger. You're going to be like, oh, I want to end on the action. I want to end on the action. And then you got the entire thing was a psychological warfare campaign generated by the Japanese military to generate the mass panic. I mean, it would be successful, right? So they're watching radar and then all of a sudden the plane disappears because it just kamikaze right off the coast. People with the searchlights. Oh, my God, there's something start going crazy with it. Yeah. Honestly, you know what that kind of reminds me of? The old Total Recall movie when they're chasing down Arnold. Mm hmm. And they're just like, oh, he's over there. And they don't even like look. They just turn and then they just start shooting there. They're like, oh, he's over there. Turn and then they just start shooting. They don't even see him. They just start shooting. So it's like, oh, there it is in the sky. Just start shooting. But that begs the question then, what did the people see? Was it just their imagination or could it, been, could it have been something else? Mass hysteria. Mass hysteria? I mean, eh. It's a thing. Like when when you're interrogating somebody, you like lay suggestible things out like, yeah, because you know that they don't really know what the hell they're talking about. 
So you're like, yeah, you're like interrogating that witness. And you're like, yeah, and then they, but the bear was there, right? And they're like, yeah, there was this giant 10 foot bear in there. And he was, he was wearing, you know, some weird hat. And then they start like, you, you put suggestionable things out there and people grow their imagination off of that. Okay. You know, in mass hysteria, if you say, hey, I saw a UFO, they might be like thinking back on it and be like, okay, you know, your brain's working at a million miles an hour. You've got adrenaline pumping through you because you're hearing loud explosions in the sky. And you're like, oh my God, it's real. It's really happening. And you're seeing it. You're just like, holy cow. Okay. Mm -hmm. We do have a theory as to another thing it could have been, that they actually could have saw something, right? Well, this theory is that what the military had seen was not a UFO or planes, but was in fact a weather balloon that had been released by a weatherman. That the military had mistaken the balloons for enemy aircraft, with everyone being trigger happy, they started firing away. But still, that doesn't explain the radar incident and reports of people seeing the bombs hit off of whatever was in the sky. But, I mean, the bombs hitting off whatever was in the sky was explained by you stating that, hey, the type of artillery they were firing exploded in the sky. So it just leaves us with the radar incident, right? Well, I mean, for 30 minutes, though, that had to shred at those weather balloons. For 30 minutes of constant firing. Yeah, true. It's kind of like a hard one. What if it was a balloon, though? But it was, uh, so this is another one of our theories, that it was a recon balloon, that the military did see a balloon, but it wasn't just a, like a weather balloon. It was a spy balloon. So what if the Japanese had flown a plane, I mean, right off the coast, and that's what the radar picked up, and they released a bunch of like weather type balloons. But these balloons were spy balloons and they relayed information back to the plane as to the locations of anti-aircraft stations, right? So as these balloons were floating across the sky, the anti-aircraft were firing up at it and these balloons were picking up the locations on the ground of where these were stationed at, relaying that information back to the plane, which was relaying it back to Japan. So the Japanese military would know where to bomb in Los Angeles to be able to uh, fly their planes safely across. I mean, just a theory. Okay. It's a good one. Yeah, but I don't know if they had that technology back then. Okay, so like they said, whatever crashed in Roswell was not a weather balloon, but it was a seismic detector, and it was used to detect nuclear bomb detonations from Russia. So it could be. I mean, Roswell was what, like two years after World War II? Just to say, like, Japan didn't already have that technology. And this event was before Roswell, which I was kind of surprised. You don't hear much about this event at all. No. You don't. You, you mention it and people think of the movie, The Battle of Los Angeles with the Aliens. Yeah, which screwed up me searching for information about this because all I see... You had to type 1942. Yeah, exactly. That's what I had to type. Battle of Los Angeles 1942. Because if you just type Battle of Los Angeles, you get that f shitty movie. Hey, maybe that was part of it, though, to cover it up. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. All right. Uh, so we do have a couple more theories. So, Dan, do you want to tell us about this search and rescue theory? Yeah. So this theory revolves around a strange plane crash that wasn't really reported on until after the Battle of Los Angeles. On the morning of February 24th, 1942, 
a plane crash was reported in the heart of Hollywood. One witness said that by the time they arrived at the crash site, the military was on the scene and had covered most of the wreckage up with sheets. But this witness said they believed that they saw Japanese writing on some of the aircraft. Later, when this witness made another statement, they described the writing as more like old-looking, simple pictures on the side, you know, like hieroglyphics. So this begs the question here, could this plane have been a crashed UFO? So many witnesses have seen quote-unquote UFO crash site describe the debris having hieroglyphic markings on them. Now, since this is a downed UFO and the military knew what it was, and they pretty much snatched up the aliens and the crashed UFO before anybody could really get a really good look at it. Who's to say that the UFO on the 25th of February wasn't to do a search and rescue of the downed one on the 24th? So this theory is pretty much that it was a UFO, that this UFO that they'd found the day prior had connections with the Battle of Los Angeles. That's why I was moving so slow. It's like, well, yo, where are you at, buddy? <laughs> Where's it? Why are these assholes firing on us? We're, we're just looking for a friend. Jesus. All right. Um, so we do have a couple more theories. We have one theory, of course. It's a short one. Yeah, it was a UFO. The government knew about it. This was the first official interaction with a UFO that the United States government had. and. They were just trying to cover it up. So, eh. Hmm. What a way to greet them, huh? Right. All right, so our last theory comes from Hans. So tell us about this theory, Hans. So I had to think about this theory and how relevant it could be to this situation. So I'll give you a little backstory. Every once in a while, it's like every quarter, every year, a military base goes on full lockdown. Now, they kind of give you like a warning, like, hey, we're going to do this this day. Sometimes they don't. And they make you get battle ready. You pick up, you pick up, you know, live rounds. You pick up everything. You start guarding the gates. You make, you know, choke points. If you don't have a common access card, a CAC card, you can't get on base. If you, like, leave the motor pool area that's guarded, if you ain't got a CAC card to come back in, you're not getting back in. If you're doing some suspicious stuff, be sure that me and the boys are coming to tackle you, arrest you, and call the MPs. Done it before. So, you know, that's just to test your readiness of, like, what you are capable of doing as an Army base. Happens with every base, not just the Army. Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard. Maybe not the Coast Guard. I don't know. But we tend to do that stuff to always maintain that readiness, right? So... Let's say, what if that day was a test? That it was a test to test out how ready we are against an actual aircraft invasion by the forces of Japan. Think about it. Two months before that was Pearl Harbor. And in fact, fun fact, I found this, on December 11th, the whole coast off of Los Angeles was put on high alert because radar supposedly picked up a high amount of enemy aircraft approaching the coast. Los Angeles was placed in a blackout. Anti-aircraft guns were on the ready on the coast, but they were ready to blast stuff out of the sky. And this was at 7.35 p.m. So 
Most of the artillery, the anti-aircraft artillery was like, said, hey, by the way, there's a situation. And the interceptor command stated that there were several planes to the south of Los Angeles that are unidentified. And this area would be blacked out. But shortly after, response planes had left the runways and airports and everything had blacked out. Searchlights were scanning the sky. They were radioed and said the mission was a success, but no shots were fired. In fact, that this was just a test to test the military's readiness for a possible invasion or attack on American soil. So who's to say that this just wasn't another random attack or staged attack just to test, just to make sure that they were ready? But some people got trigger happy because they thought they saw something. Or maybe it was just a blimp that they released. And they're like, oh my God, look at that. And they're like, holy cow, blasting it like a predator when they think they see something in the jungle and they're all just blasting everything. They're just shooting up in the air at it. And it you know, was just a huge test to test the readiness of the defenses of the mainland. Hmm. Okay. Testing it. You think they also use that as a way to gain support for the war? Oh, probably. I mean. What, like I said, in my theory, like yours, what better way than just to say that we don't know what it was, release it to the public? Yeah, you gain experience from testing, right? Because it was a test. You find out your weaknesses. You also gain support for the war, and then you gain support for the executive order. Mm hmm. Okay. Plausible theory. I like to think it was like uh, one of Hitler's UFOs. Yeah, UFOs that he flew over. Well, think about it. They were allies, Japan and Germany. So who's to say that that really wasn't the case, that they had gotten one? And Hitler's like, yeah, like we can't get past the coastal defenses from England and the East Coast because we didn't attack, you know, any major shipyards. You destroyed practically all the dang Navy ships that were guarding the American coast in Pearl Harbor. So we'll have you guys take it over there on one of your air aircraft carriers and we're going to fly it and see what happens. All right. I like that. Speculating here. Yeah, speculating. All right. So I guess that kind of rolls us on to personal thoughts and theories. I'm going to ask you, Dan, do you believe that there was something in the sky that night? Yes or no? Actually, no. Hans? Maybe, but I don't think it was a UFO, and I don't think it was a plane. I just think it was, like, a blimp. Okay. I'll have to say, yes, I believe that something was in the sky. Now, Dan, do you believe that the government knew what actually occurred that night? Yes. Definitely. Hans? Of course. All right, I'm going to have to agree yes as well. All right, Dan, if you had to stick to one theory as to what you think occurred that night, what do you think happened? Your theory of the executive order of 9066, because, I mean, you got to think about it. Imprisoning or, you know, not imprisoning, but 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry being held captive in a little concentration camp. How are you going to make that seem like, oh, it's the right thing to do? You have to have, oh, look. They're sending planes or something over to try to attack us. We don't know if any of them are spies. They're trying to make it a legitimate reason of why they're doing it. A legal reason, you could say. 
Okay. And just something that I remembered right quick. Uh, I did find some research that I forgot to add in the strange facts and findings. Some individuals started uh, pulling the weather data from that night and tracked the wind flow and wind direction. And it would have been physically impossible for a recon balloon or any type of balloon to go in the direction that the said aircraft or whatever uh, was said to have went. Okay. It was going in the opposite direction of the wind flow that the aircraft was. So just a random knowledge nugget. What if it was being towed by a Navy vessel right off the coast? Because not only were blimps used for recon back in World War II, but they were used by the Navy. Hear me out. They would be put up with thick cable lines when they were uh, being used by the Navy, when they were in big formations, when there was an enemy airplanes inbound. So those thick cables, when they would come in to dive bomb, they would slice the wings off of enemy aircraft and damage them before they could drop their payload. So they were constantly being towed, hooked up to a vessel. So what if that vessel was just off the coast, tugging it along? That's a long-ass tow. Yeah. All right, Hans, what's your personal thoughts behind all this and theories? If you had to stick with one, what is it? Ooh, I can't stick with one. I would probably stick with yours and mine combined. Yeah, just it was support for general war causes. I mean, nobody really wanted to go to war. We had just about 20 years later got done, you know, winning the tide of World War One as voluntary. We were sending voluntary people over there, then decided to get into it. And it was a horrible war. And that was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And nobody wanted to get into another world war. Yeah, that's true. I mean, shortly after that, you know, when Japan attacked, Hitler was like, yo, psych, I lied. I'm going to declare war on you guys. It was like on December 10th, he declared that. Okay. Um, so my theory, if I had to stick with one, is I would have to honestly go right along with you, Hans. I, I mean, I want to believe that there was a UFO in the sky, but my brain, my heart, everything points to it being a government psyop for the public uh, to get public support around the war and the executive order. But I don't know. That document, it, that's what just throws me for a loop. That release document from the Freedom of Information Act that was in 1974 of that unidentified airplane off the coast with no bearing on conventional explanation and probably interplanetary origin. I don't know. That is one thing that kind of like throws me off and makes me think maybe there was something in the sky that night and the government had no idea what the hell it was. Maybe that letter's a deep fake. Like the CIA, whatever agency put that in there as a plausible way to like throw everybody's suspicion off of, you know, internment camps well it was released in 74 so here's a thought though i don't know when or if they had the technology to do it but this would be a perfect example for project bluebeam so explain to us what uh project bluebeam is dan so project bluebeam claims that like nasa is attempting to implement a new age religion with the antichrist as its head and start a new world order via a technologically simulated second coming. 
pretty much like holograms in the sky that look real. You know, it's just like those uh those skyscrapers in the sky. I forgot where they were at. People, it was like a city in the sky that people saw, and it looked super real, but then it like it disappeared. Oh, okay. So basically, NASA's for Project Bluebeam, NASA's beaming images up into the sky, which makes people think it's the second coming of Christ and to bring in the new world order. But probably not to that extent. That's what Bluebeam is. And you're thinking that maybe this UFO or whatever was being seen in the over Los Angeles was the government testing out their capabilities of projecting images into the sky. Yeah, because you think about it, like, Obviously, whatever was there, it, was, it wasn't being hit at all. All the stuff, all the shrapnel stuff was just going through it. There was no wreckage of it. It's just shells and stuff everywhere, destroying buildings and stuff, but none of the building or none of the, none of the ship or UFO or whatever it is. All right. Okay. I like that, Dan. I like that theory. I mean, I don't know if Bluebeam was back then, but hey, they could have been testing it for all we know. Yeah. And with the sh- light shining on it, it's probably a, it was probably a messed up image with all the light shining on it. You can't tell what it is. No one knew what it was. So I'm just saying. Okay. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it was an interesting topic. I enjoyed researching it and looking into it. Super, uh, super weird stuff that I'm into. Yeah, me too. Super into this episode, guys. This, this was a good one. Yep. So do either of y'all have anything else you want to add to today's episode before we move on to our next section? If anybody knows anybody that was living there or alive then, let us know. Send us an email. They're going to be like over 100 years old or damn near close to 100. You could be 80. Yeah, be about 80. You got to think. You you have to be, what, 10 to actually kind of sort of remember something back then. It was 1942. How long since 1942? My dad was born in 1948. He would have been 71 this year. So take six years off that, but then add, so 16. So if you were born in 42, you'd be 79 right now. And let's say you were six when this occurred. You'd be 85. So okay. So 85, 90, give or take. Yeah, so you'd be old as shit, but send us an email. We'd love to talk to him. With that being said, that's the end of the topic this week. And I guess let's move on to this week's On the Scene. Now, if you don't know what an on-the-scene is, it is where a listener uh, goes on the street and interviews unsuspecting individuals and asks them about current conspiracy happenings around the world. You, yes you, can go and do this and record it on your phone and send that recording to our email and uh, just make sure that it is less than two minutes long and it will be played at the end of our episode. And we do have a long list of on-the-scene interviews, and we play one a week, so yours will be added in queue. So just have patience with us. Please make sure the audio quality is good. Yes, make sure the audio quality is decent. Don't have like a truck being backed up in the background and people screaming or bombs going off or whatever. We just got to be able to hear you and hear the questions and hear the responder. Yes. All right, so our on-the-scene this week comes from Aubrey, and we're going to play that right now. This is Miss Aubrey with one of her pre-K students, and we're going to do a rapid-fire type of interview. Do you believe in giants? Yes. Have you ever seen a giant before? Yes. What does it look like, or did it look like? It looked like a big 
fuzzy cat in the clouds. Okay. Do you believe in fairies? Yes. Have you ever seen a fairy before? Yes. What did it look like? It was the tooth fairy, and she gave my brother some money from my brother's first lost tooth. Do you know how much money she gave him? Five. Five dollars? Man, you guys got some money. Yeah. How do you think the dinosaurs died? Because of a meteor right erupted. Sorry, we got cut off by another student. So you, what did you think happened to the dinosaurs? A meteorite erupted. A meteor erupted and killed all of the dinosaurs. What is your favorite dinosaur? The Mega Indominus Rex. I'm not even going to attempt to um, tell you what you just said. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys have a great day. Bye. Wow, that kid really knew his dinosaurs. Is that a real dinosaur? I don't know. Oh, I thought you just looked it up. The Megadominus? Yeah, Megadominus Rex. Oh shit, that is right. Mega Indominus Rex. What? Dude, link a pic right now. Even though all dinosaurs are fake, they're just big old chickens. Yeah. Yeah, this is true too. That a lot of hair. They don't look like anything that they current look like currently look like in movies. Dang. Kid knows dinosaurs better than I do. I know the Triceratops. I know the one with the turtle with the two heavy spikes at the back. I don't even know what that one is. I know Triceratops. I know the Stegosaurus. I know the Raptor, T-Rex. All right. Well, thank you for, um, thank you for that on the scene. Aubrey, always good to hear from you. Yes, thank you. We love you, and we're proud of you. Oh, yes, yeah, always, always nice to hear how little kids believe in these things. Yeah. So now we're going to roll on to our shout outs. Um, I guess I'll start this week. I, I don't have that many. I just have a few. So I want to shout out uh, Philip. I want to shout out Tia Gorsa. I think I said your name right. If I didn't, I'm sorry. Josh Mack. Uh, Easton Hawk. Dave Moore. Liz Craig. Fred R. Jenna F. Mad. Michael. Pete B, Charlie Scott, uh, Quentin S, Shanna Miller, Justin N, uh, Katrina, Jake S, me Angel Grace Cassess. Sorry if I said your name wrong. Matthew A, Madison L, Sherry O, and let me hop over to my personal Instagram. Um, I want to shout out Carlos Esperanza, Ken Krusakarskis, Chance Ligare, Alex Herman, Anthony Powers, Joey Rodriguez, Trey Day, Chris Brewer, Andrew George, Mark Tyson, Richie, Vinny B. And for my last shout out this week, it's going to go to Aaron Gray. She sent a care package. The care package was amazing. It had like a Bigfoot hair in it. It had Chupacabra hat. It had like all this cool, awesome stuff. And I think I'm going to post a picture of it on my personal Instagram. Everybody go take a look at it. Big ups to her. Love you. 
And I love you all, and I'm proud of you all, and that's it for my shout-outs. Yeah, she's great. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Dan, who do you got for shout-outs this week? All right. Mine is very short. I don't have many. From Facebook, I have Daryl R., Stacy L., Todd R., Madison S., Corey R., Jason G. And then from Discord the other night, we were all in the lounge chatting. Had Pete Nasty, Aguman, Justine, Lissa, Faye, Girls Club, Discordian, AJ, Tosh, and Hobbs. You know, it was a fun night. I think, I think we were in there till 2 or 3 a.m. I think actually probably 4. Oh, yeah. Haven't talked to Agumon in a while. It's good to see him again. Agumon, love you. I love you all. That's it. All right, Hans. Who do you got for shout-outs this week? Going to hop over here to the good old Instagram. Big shout-out to Cassidy McWither. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your whole name wrong. Please forgive me. But you get a big shout-out because, one, you're from Indiana. Um, not that big of a shout out because you're an Indiana University fan, but also she suggested that we look into the Astro World stuff. Dude, we have so many requests to look into that. It's almost as if like, should we move our Patreon episode to next week and just do the Astro World this week? I don't I don't even know. I mean, it's hot right now. Astro World's so hot right now. It's so hot. So hot. I don't know. We'll have to discuss that later on. Mm-hmm. But thank you for that suggestion. It's well noted. See all the attention you just got. Um, another shout out to Emily Taylor, Desiree. Um, thanks for trying to act like you listen to heavy metal, but you don't. Um, another person on here would be Energy. He said, hey, can I get a shout out? Or how does the homie get a shout out? I said, don't worry, fam. Got you. Holly Taylor, um, Lashay, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name wrong, but your name on Discord happens to be Appleberry, so there you go, if I, I'm pretty sure I got that name right. Tom, I'm not going to try to pronounce your last name, Zuthaldorf, I think, big shout out to you, Mercies, Joseph Toon. Uh, Tristan S. Had a great time talking to you. Uh, Spencer Roberts. Hop over here real quick. Get Guaco19K. And Thin Glizzy and Girls Club 666. You all are wonderful. And I can't forget about the last one. Big shout out, just like Aaron said, to Aaron Gray. She, too, sent me a care package with a cool hat that says ask me about my can i say it okay ask me about my butthole while it has a ufo beaming a dude up (laughs) some bigfoot hair nice yeah (laughs) so nice like an alien button up like aaron said like she sent a lot of stuff to both all three of us and yeah it was a lot i was like whoa yeah it was a heavy little box i didn't get a cool letter like aaron so i'm a little upset there miss gray but it's okay I wrote you a letter in return. Nice. So, thank you. All right. Well, uh, that's the end of the episode today. I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You all are amazing. So with that being said, Dan and Hans, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you're not alone.